1: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
2: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
1: That what has been asked may be fulfilled. For every man is at once God's debtor, and has also some brother a debtor to himself every episode we bring you a different voice
3: from history and a sermon that they delivered this sermon that we're going to be hearing today is from saint augustine yes we're going back to the fifth century the 400s a.d uh, towards the end of the roman empire troy how are you doing today Doing good, Joel. How are you? Doing good. I, I like St. Augustine. I like going back to these old ones, and I, I particularly... He's He's got an interesting life. He's got a fascinating life. I'm excited to return to him. We did we do have a St. Augustine episode. It's over a year old in this feed, so you're forgiven if you haven't heard it yet. But if you find today's episode interesting, go back and, and check that one out for sure, or maybe start there and come here. Either way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, I do recommend going to check out that last episode. We did a, more of an overview of his life. Today, we're going to kind of focus on a couple details from his life story. So if you're looking for that overview, go listen to the last one. Also, it was one of the more, I mean, when we put that episode out, that was one of the top, most popular episodes of that year. People really enjoyed the sermon. People really enjoy the story of St. Augustine. Now, as a little clarifier, anytime we do somebody from really old, if you listen to our recent episode by Anselm or Aquinas, we've dubbed Gregory of Nazianzus. I mean, there's all these guys from way back that we go over in our show that we like to keep people, you know, that are the best preachers of all time. And some of them are 1500 years ago and that's awesome but we always recommend just keep in mind that what you're listening to is so incredibly old there are going to be little pieces of it that might sound a little different to what you're used to and that is okay that's actually perfectly fine Uh, what's more impressive is that the fact that something that's 1500 years old sounds so similar to what you you know you believe in and what you would hear in a church on Sunday, and that there are aspects of this that if you didn't know it was fifteen hundred years old, you wouldn't know. You would you could think it could be preached last Sunday at a church near you. Now, like Joel said, we have Saint Augustine episode that we have done before, and we also have our show Revived Divas. If you are interested in hearing more Saint Augustine in your life, if you want to go through his story, his confessions by Saint Augustine, his most famous work. Uh, you can do so every single week. We put out a piece of Confessions by Saint Augustine into your new, you into your feed. It's part of our daily devotional lineup over at Revive Divas. So definitely go check that out. I have thoroughly enjoyed going through a story. I think if you, if you were to go from all the Saint Augustine episodes to now, you're we're about halfway through Confessions, maybe a little bit over, maybe closer to two thirds now. So.
3: Yes, St. Augustine, born in the year 354 AD, so right at the end of the 300s, going into the 400s. He was born in Africa, which, you know, this part is modern-day Algeria, but back then it was still part of the Roman Empire. His story is a familiar one for those who follow Revived Devos, and again, we've gone into uh, kind of a a more overview of his life in a previous episode, but uh, just to set the scene, his mother was a devout Christian named Monica. And she prayed for the soul of St. Augustine his entire life. And his father, he spent the majority of his life as a pagan. And on his deathbed, he had this conversion and and gave his life to the Lord on his deathbed.
2: And St. Augustine would not become a believer until about the age of 31. Some said 30, some said 33, but you know, kind of in that range right there. Uh, Early 30s. Yeah, early 30s. He went to school for rhetoric. And even though His family was wealthy enough to be able to send them to school. They weren't wealthy enough to send them to the good schools when he eventually would later on go into the better schools. It was on the generosity of kind of like patrons and people like that helping take care of him. Still, he had a really good talent for speech making This made of one of a kind. And it's kind of hard to understand why these speech makers were so important. Um, I kind of put myself back in Roman shoes for a minute, though. These people who give speeches, because not only St. Augustine, we've mentioned other people who were really important for their speech making. But back in those days, you don't have podcasts, you don't have news shows, you know, you don't have uh, these different things you can listen to. So when you needed something to do, or when you wanted to kill time, when you were, you know, looking for things in town to keep you entertained, these speech makers, these not quite storytellers, but, you know, these kind of analysts, these are kind of like the commentators of their time period and the really good ones were high in demand because you'd have to go sit and listen to them you didn't want to spend your time listening to the bad ones and so st augustine would have been on the better end of these kind of talent talented speech maker people and i think when we put it in that kind of modern idea of like these are podcasts or these are the youtube channels of your day this is what you go do to kill some time it makes a little bit more sense But when he became a Christian, he kind of threw that out. I don't want to be a a rhetoric teacher anymore. I don't want to be one of these lecture-giver, kind of speech-maker type of people. He used to love it, though. He said he he enjoyed it a very long time, being able to kind of make the crowd swoon, being able to get their emotions riled up, being able to get them angry or passionate or you know, quiet or sad based on what he was speaking. That was something he enjoyed doing. But as a Christian, he realized like, I don't have any desire for this, but he did get led naturally to a place of desiring to preach because of it, because they were so similar fields. And he was already such a talented speaker. Now, his means of becoming a Christian is kind of interesting, too. He wrestled with it for many, many years um, before he eventually kind of broke down one day. Um, he he had been listening to, you know, a friend of his give a story of a, of a, of a former guy, a Christian martyr or something like that, um, and how he had been a Christian his whole life. And he just felt like God was wrestling with it. When his friend left him, he felt he walked into like, you know, the, uh, the outside area of a garden. He felt like a voice was telling him, a, a child's voice was saying, come read this, come read this. He said that he thought it was children playing a game, but then he realized God was telling them to pick up the Bible. And when he opened it and began reading through it, the verse that said that just truly ended his life of not being a Christian and just brought it all to a close was this one in Romans 13. It says, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, but in strife and envying, no, sorry, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for for the flesh to fulfill the lusts anymore, and for him, he that was his life. That's how he viewed himself. Was that guy who was partying, drinking, envying, chasing lust every which way, and it just felt like God was telling him, "No more of that. You're done with that."
3: Yeah, because up until this point, he lived a life that that could easily be described that way. The woman that he lived with, he never married. They did have a child together. He spent his life living for himself, and once he became a Christian, that all. Really changed, and his mother got got to see it. I mean, this had this had been her primary prayer for the past 30 plus years was to see her son Saint Augustine come uh, to full surrenderment to towards God and what God wanted for him, and she got to see that that take place shortly before her death. She died about a year after this conversion experience, and uh, sadly, Saint Augustine's son would also die shortly after that. One of, the, one of the proofs of his change was that when he no longer had dependents, he sold his family's property and turned his home into a monastery. So he, he's not living for that material life anymore. St. Augustine now used what he had learned as a speaker and a teacher before to become a defender of the faith. But one of the things we want to kind of talk about, and something that's kind of interesting, and it may be a lesser known uh, area of St. Augustine's life is that he had spent quite a bit of time in a cult called Manichaeism.
2: Now, I remember when I was taking my church history class at Midwestern, that Manichaeism kind of stood out to me as one of the more... like You hear about our our Arianism a lot. That one's kind of like one of the most common um, heresies of this time. And if you don't know much about heresies from the 300s, that's okay. You don't need to. That's not something you have to have in life. But if you are researching and doing that and you want to learn more, these things come up again and again throughout church history. But Manicheism was one of the the heresies from this time that really stood out to me because it lasted so incredibly long. Long, In fact, when we said I wrote it down that he was a part of a cult, I think that's partially true because there was kind of like a almost a secret society way about the Manichaeans, where like you had to keep kind of going to them for more and more answers and only the highest up level teachers could teach you the secrets a little bit of almost like a Scientology to it in some ways. But in other ways, it was a very mainstream religion. It wasn't like a cult at all because it had so many, such a large number of people were following it that to call, you know, you don't think of one of the big religions of the world like Buddhism as a cult. And the same way, Manichaeism was a huge religion during its time. What made Manichaeism different though, again, is that it survived so long. There were still people believing in Manichaeism into the 1400s or the, you know, the 15th century around the world. Uh, it means for three-quarters of all of church history, it was not uncommon to have Maniche- people who believed in this this idea of Manicheism somewhere on earth, you know, distracting people from Christianity. And this, cult is, this group is really confusing. They see the world through this big prism of God, good versus evil. They see duality. They believe that God and Satan are pretty much equals and are kind of in an equal tug of war and that there's an inner light that can reveal it all and that the material world is darkness and the, the spiritual world is lightness. And all of this can get really confusing. I don't really want to get too in the weeds. You might hear some of this and think, I've heard people talk like that today. It still has it's, you know, its roots are still strong in some ways around the world. And people believed in it anywhere from Britain all the way out to China. There is, in fact, a temple, a temple that's now a Buddhist temple, but a temple in China that was originally a Manichean temple that was created by them to worship their ideas. So this thing went around the world. In fact, there are some scholars who are arguing that this as man, as still the original Manichaeanism, the same they're reading the same documents that there are people in China who still worship the original version of this religion today, two thousand years later, and so that it may never have actually officially stopped having worshipers, That there are still people following it. That's how long lasting it has been as a problem for the world it may not seem like a big deal to us right now but prior to islam this one Manichaeism was the number one rival even in some ways more than arianism was the rival to christianity that people were either christians or they were these this group of manicheans who adopted some christian ideas but just kind of blended it into a stew and added all these other pagan and other weird ideas to it and saint augustine was a firm believer in this for a long portion of his early life.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6.
0: Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
3: When St. Augustine became a Christian, he definitely left this group and its people behind. But for a good chunk of his life, he was a defender and an advocate of theirs. Many people have touched on different aspects of of St. Augustine's life, but uh, we sometimes forget that he didn't convert to Christianity until he was 31, so that means for the majority of his 20s, he was basically a part of Christianity's chief rival, you you know, it's essentially a cult, and that God took him out of that and made him into one of the most profound theologians in church history, it's it's incredible, you know, It's, it's miraculous. He got a late start, but he wrote many books that transformed the church and all of culture. Uh, The City of God was written after the fall of Rome to encourage the people of God that there was still a place for God's people. And uh, Confessions, Troy mentioned that, that's his autobiography, probably the first real modern autobiography ever in existence right and it really reads as a praise to god for his salvation you know it's that testimony of his life one of his most famous books is called on the trinity and it's one of the most popular books on doctrine and that's just named a few but you know even you know throughout bible college i would hear about uh, saint augustine's work on trinity
2: St. Augustine is more than just a theologian. We think of him as a theologian today. That's what he's famous for to a lot of people. But he was a passionate preacher of God's word. He would go on to preach between 6,000 and 10,000 sermons in his life. Uh, We still have access to about 500 of those sermons, which is incredible for somebody who lived 1,600 years ago. And his sermons would usually last an hour. He would preach several times a week. He loved preaching. He loved God's word. He loved using his gift of speaking in a way that could edify the church. There is so much more in his life to cover. We've covered pieces of it. And again, go check out that previous episode if you want to learn more about one of the most famous people in church history. And you can always go to Revive Devos and enjoy pieces of his confessions that we put out every single week. Christianity's chief rival was Manichaeism, at least for a time. St. Augustine was one of the defenders and advocates of it. This religion crossed the whole world, would be in East Asia and would be in Western Europe, and would cause a lot of problems for the Christians around the world. And yet at the same time, God took St. Augustine from that group and brought him into the church, made him one of the great defenders of the church. And now we get to listen to him as one of the great defenders of good theology from his time.
1: Words of the Gospel. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Yesterday, the Holy Gospel warned us not to neglect the sins of our brethren. But if your brother will sin against you, rebuke him between him and you alone. If he will hear you, you have gained your brother. If he refuses to hear you, take with you two or three more. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he will neglect to hear them too, tell it to the church. But if he will neglect to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen man and a tax collector. Today, also the section which follows, and which we heard when it was read, relates to the same subject. For when the Lord Jesus had said this to Peter, he went on to ask his master How often he should forgive a brother who had sinned against him, and he inquired whether seven times would be enough. The Lord answered him, Not only seven times, but seventy times and seven. Then he added a parable, very full of terror, that the kingdom of heaven is like a householder, which took account with his servants, and among whom he found one that owed ten thousand talents. And when he commanded all that he had and all his family and himself to be sold into slavery and the debt to be paid, he fell down at his Lord's feet. He prayed for delay and instead obtained entire debt forgiveness. For as we have heard, his Lord was moved with compassion and forgave him all the debt. Then that man, free from his debt, but still in debt to sin, After he had gone out from the presence of his lord, found in his turn a debtor of his own, one who owed him not ten thousand talents, the sum of which had been forgiven to him, but only a hundred denarii. And he began to drag him by the throat and say, Pay me what you owe. Then he begged his fellow servant as he had done to his lord. But he did not find his fellow servant such a man as the other had found his Lord. He not only would not forgive him the debt, but he did not even grant him a delay. He hurried him along with great violence to make him pay. He who had been but just now set free from his debt to his Lord, his fellow servants were displeased and went and told their Lord what was done. And the Lord summoned his servant to his presence, and said to him, "O oh, you wicked servant, when you owed me so great a debt in pity, I forgave you all of it. Shouldn't you also have had compassion on your fellow-servant, even as I had pity on you and he commanded that all which he had forgiven him should be paid. It is then for our instruction that he gave us this parable, and by this warning." he would save us from perishing. So, he said, Will my heavenly Father do also to you, if, from your hearts, you do not forgive every one his brother their trespasses? O brothers, the statement is plain. It is a useful command, and a complete obedience is due for all of us. That what has been asked may be fulfilled, for every man is at once God's debtor, and has also some brother a debtor to himself. For who is there who is not God's debtor? For in whom is there no sin? And who is there who does not have a brother that is his debtor? Except he against whom no one has sinned. Do you think that any one among all of humanity can be found who is not himself bound to his brother by some sin? So then, every man is a debtor, yet he has for himself his own debtors too. The righteous God therefore appoints a rule for you towards your debtors, which he also will observe with his. For two works of mercy are there, which deliver us, which the Lord has himself briefly laid down in the gospel. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Forgive, and you will be forgiven, relating to pardoning. Give, and it will be given to you, relates to doing kindnesses. As to what he says of pardoning, you both wish your sin to be pardoned, and you have another whom you need to pardon. Again, as to doing kindnesses, a beggar asks of you, and you are also God's beggar. For we are all, when we pray, God's beggars. We stand, or rather, we fall prostrate before the door of the great householder, and we groan in supplication, wishing to receive something. And this something is God himself. What does the beggar ask of you? Bread. And what do you ask of God? But Christ, who says, I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. Would you be forgiven? Forgive. Forgive, and it will be forgiven. Would you receive it? Give, and it will be given to you. But now listen to what is so plain a point I may cause a controversy. In this question of forgiveness, when pardon is asked for, and it is due from him who should grant it, it may be as difficult for us as it was to Peter. How often am I to forgive? Is seven times sufficient? It is not sufficient, says the Lord. I say not for you seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now imagine how often your brother has sinned against you. If you can reach seventy-eight faults, so as to get beyond the seventy and seven, then set about revenge, is this then what he really means? And is it really so that if he sins seventy times seven, you forgive him? But if he sins seventy times and eight, it should be then lawful for you not to forgive? No. I am bold to say that if he should even sin seventy eight times, you must forgive him. Yes, as I have said, if he will sin seventy eight times, forgive. And if he sins a hundred times, forgive. And why must I say this so often? in one word, as often as he will sin, forgive him. Have I then taken upon myself to attempt to forgive more than my Lord? He fixed the limit of forgiveness in the number 77. Will I presume to overleap this limit? It is not so. I have not presumed to go at all beyond his limit. I have heard the Lord himself speaking in his apostle, where there is no measure or fixed number. For he says, Forgiving one another, if any man has a quarrel against any, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Here you have the rule. If Christ has forgiven you your sins seventy times and seven only, if he has pardoned up to this point and refused to pardon beyond it, then you also fix this limit and be sure not to forgive beyond it. But if Christ has found thousands of sins upon sins, and has yet forgiven all of them, then do not withdraw your mercy, but ask the forgiveness of that large number. For it was not without a meaning that the Lord said seventy times seven. For there is no trespass whatever which you are not to forgive. And so, let us be ready to forgive all the trespasses which are committed against us, That is, if we desire to be forgiven. For if we consider our sins and reckon up what actions we do daily, what by the ear, what by thought, what by numberless movements we sin, and therefore we daily beg, daily knock at the ears of God by prayer, we must daily prostrate ourselves and say, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What debts of yours? All? Or a certain part? You will answer all. So then, do the same with your debtor. This then is the rule you lay down. This is the condition you speak of. This is the covenant and agreement you mention when you pray, saying, forgive us as we forgive our debtors. What then, brothers, is the meaning of 70 times 7? Here, for it is a great mystery and wonderful sacrament. When the Lord was baptized, the evangelist, St. Luke, had in that place commemorated his generations in the regular order, series, and line in which they had come down to that generation in which Christ was born. Matthew begins at Abraham and comes down to Joseph in a descending order. But Luke begins to list them in an ascending order. Why does the one list in a descending and the other in an ascending order. Because Matthew set out the generation of Christ by which he came down to us, and so he began to list when Christ was born in a descending order. Whereas, because Luke begins to list when Christ was baptized, in this is the beginning of ascension. He begins to list it in an ascending order. And in his list, he has completed 77 generations. With whom did he begin his list? Observe with whom? He began to list from Christ up to Adam himself, who was the first sinner. And who gave us the bond of sin? He listed it up from Adam. And so, there are 77 generations reconciled. That is, from Christ up to Adam, and from Adam up to Christ, are the aforesaid seventy-seven generations. So then, if no generation was omitted, there is no exemption of any trespass which will not be forgiven. For therefore he reconciled up his seventy-seven generations, which number the Lord mentioned, as to forgiveness of sins since he begins to reconcile from his baptism. Then all sins of the faithful in the past generations will be forgiven. Consider then, brothers, every man begins from baptism. He goes out free, for the ten thousand talents are forgiven him, and when he goes out, he will soon find some fellow servant his debtor. Let him note then what sin itself is. For the number eleven is the transgression of the law. For the law is ten. Sin is the eleven. For the law is denoted by ten. Sin by eleven. Why is sin denoted by eleven? Because to get to eleven, there is a transgression of the ten. But the due limit is fixed in the law. And the transgression of it is sin. Now when you have passed beyond the ten you come to eleven. This high mystery was figured out when the tabernacle was commanded to be built. There are many things mentioned there in Numbers, which are a great mystery. Among the rest, curtains of haircloth were ordered to be made not ten, but eleven. Because by haircloth is signified the confession of sins. Now what do you require more? Would you know how all sins are contained in this number 77? Seven, then, is usually put for a whole, because in seven days the revolution of time is completed, and when the seventh is ended, it returns to the first again, so that the same revolution may be continued. In such revolutions, whole ages pass away, yet there is no departure from the number 7. For he spoke of all sins... When he said seventy times seven. For multiplied that eleven seven times, and it makes seventy-seven. Therefore, would he have all sins forgiven? For he marked them out by the number seventy-seven. Let no one then retain against himself by refusing to forgive, lest it be retained against him when he prays. For God says, Forgive, and you will be forgiven. For I have forgiven you first. You at least forgive after that. For if you will not forgive, I will call you back and put upon you again all that I had forgiven you. For the truth does not speak falsely. Christ neither deceives nor is deceived. And he has said at the close of the parable, So likewise will your Father which is in heaven do for you. You find a father. Imitate your father, for if you will not imitate him, you are devising to be disinherited. So likewise, then, will my heavenly Father do also for you if you, from your hearts, do not forgive any one of your brothers their trespasses. Say not with the tongue, I forgive, and put off to forgive in the heart. For by his threat of vengeance, God shows you your punishment. God knows where you speak. Man can hear your voice. God looks into your conscience. If you say, I forgive, then forgive. Better is it that you should be violent in words and forgive in the heart, than in words be soft and in the heart relentless. I have sinned, but forgive me. Well, I have forgiven. And he says again, forgive me. He cries. And I have forgiven him. He sins a third time. Forgive me, he cries. And a third time, I have forgiven him. Now then, the fourth time, let him be beaten, we say. And he will say, What? Have I tried you out seventy-seven times? For upon the lack of discipline, wickedness will rage with impunity. What then is to be done? Let us reprove with words, and if we must, with scourges. But let us forgive the sin and cast away the remembrance of it from the heart. For in this way did the Lord say, from your hearts, that even though loving discipline will need to be exercised, gentleness might not depart from out of our heart. For what is so kind and gentle as the surgeon with the knife? He that is to be cut cries, yet cut he is. He that is to be cauterized cries, but cauterized he is. This is not cruelty. On no account let that surgeon's treatment be called cruelty. He is cruel against the wounded, so that the patient may be cured. For if the wound is softly dealt with, the man dies. So then, would I advise my brothers that we love our brothers, despite that they may have sinned against us that we let not affection toward them depart out of our hearts, and that when need is there, that we exercise discipline toward them. For by the relaxation of discipline, wickedness increases, and we begin to be accused on God's behalf. For it has been read to us, them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. If the sin is in secret, rebuke it in secret. If the sin is public and open, Rebuke it publicly, that the sinner may be reformed, and the others also may fear.
2: This sermon is on forgiveness, and I really enjoyed this sermon on forgiveness because of the way he just, he has a good way of describing, you know, I don't know if I fully understand some of the things he's doing with numbers in the sermon. It got a little bit beyond me, perhaps, but I really love the way that he just looked through the scripture and goes, Jesus is the perfect forgiveness, the perfect wiping of the slate clean. We had another episode on forgiveness by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, that was earlier in the series of Revive Thoughts, where he talked about how forgiveness is just taking away, completely removing from your life. And I think St. Augustine does a good job of reminding us of that, too. Where we look at forgiveness sometimes as, okay, I'm just going to let this go and not think about it anymore. But St. Augustine, Bonhoeffer, these people of the old times are telling us, no, Like forgiveness needs to be completely dropped from your life. It needs to be completely removed. You're putting it as far away from you as God does your sins from you. And I think that I think it's something that we all need to work on and grow in a little bit is that really, truly embracing a life of forgiveness that we take sin completely from us.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Michael Jeffries. Big thanks to him for narrating today's episode.
2: If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you, please give this episode a share, send it to a friend, tell others about it. Maybe say, hey, I forgive you for the things you've done to me because of the sermon from Thought. Okay, maybe don't do it that way, but definitely <laughs> let other people know about Thoughts and the shows we're doing if you enjoyed this one. And again, as we mentioned multiple times throughout this episode, if you like St. Augustine or you want to learn more about him, go over to Revive Devo, hit subscribe, and listen to those episodes from St. Augustine and some of the other people. You might grow quite a bit in your faith and having a daily devotional. It's only two to three minutes long from uh, snippets from these great teachers of history i think is a very encouraging and edifying way to start your day or maybe end your day depending on when you want to listen to the show but it's right there every single day two to three minutes of coverage this is troy angel and this is revive thoughts